1: Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. Apple's decision this week to release a new version of its iPhone operating system that explicitly requires users' permission to allow apps to track your behavior and movements around the web and movements around the world has reignited a debate about privacy and the information we share both willingly and unwittingly in the digital age. Apple is saying Apps can't track your activities and use that data to target advertising to you or do anything else unless you explicitly say it's okay. Facebook says this cuts into their ability to offer a free product supported by advertising. I had a great discussion this week about this topic with business expert Chris Hill, the host of Motley Fool Money, and that show is in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. I definitely recommend that you check it out, but one area we did not explore is the degree to which we make decisions, sometimes without even realizing it, about how much information we share about our kids. Kids are not offered the opportunity to opt out of their parents sharing information about their families, the physical movement and activities of those families, or parents willingly sharing personal, embarrassing, or simply descriptive information about their kids. Turns out, this is a deep, fraught, and complicated topic that too many of us not really thought about. And that's why I wanted to bring in one of the world-leading experts on this topic. Leah Plunkett is the author of the book, Sharon Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. She wrote it two years ago, but it's as prescient and relevant today, maybe even more so. Leah is a very accomplished legal scholar with positions at the University of New Hampshire School of Law and the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. By the way, For listeners to the show on WKXL or podcast subscribers to the Capital Close-Up Podcast feed, she's also the spouse of Mike Lewis, who Paul Hodes had as a guest recently. I want to serve notice here and now that Leah is the classic example of why people invented the term better half. As smart and accomplished as Mike Lewis is, Leah is even more so, so... Take that, Congressman Hodes. And with that, Leah, welcome to Beyond Politics.
0: Matt, that is the best introduction I have ever received. Thank you so much for having me and for that fabulous introduction. I'm so excited for our conversation today.
1: Accurate and well-earned, if I must say so myself. So you have coined a term here in your book, sharenthood, which is, uh, I guess a, what is that, a noun form? of a verb sharenting. You've you've put together parenting and sharing. What is sharenting? What is sharenthood?
0: Thank you so much for that question, Matt. I will take credit for sharenthood. I will not take credit for sharenting. I did not actually coin that term, I believe in credit where credit is due, but I will take credit for expanding the definition of sharenting. So sharenting, as you said, bringing together share and parenting typically is used to mean what parents say about their kids on social media. So it is a focused definition in two ways. It's focused on parents, not any other adults. And it is focused on social media, not any other forms of digital technology. I expanded the definition of sharenting in my book, Sharenthood, why we should think before we talk about our kids online from MIT Press. And I said, sharenting is best understood as being all the ways that parents grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers, coaches, and other trusted adults share children's private information, knowingly or not, through all forms of digital technologies, devices, and services. So that definitely still encompasses what I as a proud expectant mom post on Facebook if I put my sonogram picture up. It also though covers, Matt, what I as a mom trying to conceive might be sharing not just about my own physiology, but about my future child's if I'm using a fertility tracking app or bracelet. And it would also encompass what the grandparents in my future baby's life might say on social media, or a toy, for instance, that they might give my child once they are born. Maybe it's a smart toy. So an artificial intelligence enabled teddy bear. Maybe it is a watch when they're a bit older that has a built-in tracking device. So to really understand the extent to which all of us adults, almost always with the best of intentions and certainly almost never with malicious intentions, are transmitting information about our kids and our whole families outside of our home without realizing we're doing it is very significant, and I agree with you. I actually had trouble sort of turning in that Sharon Hood manuscript because I kept saying to the editor, but there's more happening. And they kept saying, give us the manuscript. You can write a follow-up. And I actually have a running list in this battered copy of Sharon Hood that I'm holding up to the screen that I have taken everywhere from the Hopkinton Public Library to LA and New York. I was due to take it abroad, but then the pandemic happened. I keep a running list of Things that relate to sharenting that happened since the hardcover edition came out in fall 2019. It's a very long list, as you can tell from all the post-it notes.
1: Well, there is, I think, as you say, a lot to unpack here, and it kind of gets into, if you remember, the famous press conference that Donald Rumsfeld once held, where he started talking about it was it was almost poetic, especially for him. There are known knowns, there are known unknowns, there are unknown unknowns. That does kind of characterize the problem here. And that's what I want to get into next. It, it's it's sort of hard, I think, for a lot of people to conceive of why sharenting is a problem. Sometimes when my kids are acting up, I will challenge them with a question, why is what you're doing good? So I want to put the mirror image question to you. Why is this bad? Now, I have my own in reading the book, I, I had kind of, I, I classified it into sort of two buckets. One was you kind of gave the, actually, I'll let you describe it. You, you start the book by giving the Tom Sawyer example. What's the, what's the Tom Sawyer example, and, and why does that kind of illustrate why sharenting can be bad?
0: I open the book, as you say, Matt, excellent close reading, by saying if Tom Sawyer were a real kid alive today, he would be arrested for what he does in the first chapter of Twain's canonical work. Tom breaks out of his guardian's house in the middle of the night, he skips school, he gets into a fight with the new kid in town. And then I go on to say, and Tom would probably take pictures of what he was doing and share them online somehow, whether he thinks it's a private Snapchat with his friends or not, but then his aunt Polly in her distress of having to go bail him out of the police station yet again, and in her moments of desperation of what am I going to do with my rascal of a nephew, would be very likely to go online herself, perhaps to a parenting Facebook group, or even in what she might think of as a private text thread that could always, unfortunately, we screenshotted and reshared, and I go on over the course of that book to unpack and build upon that today's Tom Sawyer example to say that if we as the adults in our children's lives are making decisions about whether, when, how, why, and to what ends to share it, we are putting our kids at risk of depriving them of a protected space to play. And I don't mean play video games or even play board games. I use play in a broader sense to make mischief, maybe make a few mistakes and grow up better for having made them. And part of why and how we're we're taking them out of this protected private space to play is that we are letting other people, people who may not know us, who may not know them, both now and in the future, both real people and corporate people, Again, the corporate people may not all be transparent to us. Find out things about our kids. So today's Tom would probably feel really embarrassed in a couple of years when he goes to apply for his first job at the ice cream store in town. And it turns out his prospective boss saw one of Aunt Polly's rants. That is an example of another person somewhat tied to Polly and Tom's social circle, but maybe a little bit attenuated, actually finds out specific embarrassing information about Tom and holds it against him. But where I get even more nervous, Matt, is that it is essentially impossible for Polly or any other parent to really know what kind of data, whatever social media platform she's posting on, is pulling from her posts what kind of data third parties, either knowingly involved with that social media platform, I say knowingly meaning the platform knows about it, or unknowingly, maybe we have people who are scraping information or inserting themselves into the platform in illicit and unintentioned ways. We don't know as Polly, or as the parents to our own kids, really what the other side of that bargain is that we're making with the social media company or any other digital tech provider. And so I'm going to go law nerd for like two seconds, and then I'm going to get back to being not law nerd. So actually my my better half, Mike Lewis, has written an excellent law review article looking at contracts of adhesion. It's called Persuasive Infancy published in University of New Hampshire, Franklin Pierce School of Law's Law Review. And it debunks the idea that a click wrap agreement or any other contract of adhesion, one where the person agreeing to it really has no meaningful bargaining power is actually a contract. And Mike is right, I'm just gonna tell you and all your listeners I said that, don't tell him, but he's right that when we are clicking accept or agree or swiping left or right or whatever we're doing these days, The law thinks we as consumers are entering into contracts with this digital technology provider. It is a contract in name only. We don't know, both because the contracts are completely dense and hard to follow, and also because they never contain all the facts. So the contract will say, we don't share your private information except to improve the user experience. We don't share your private information except with our third-party partners. There's truly no way to tell, even if you nerd out, like I do and read through all of it, where that information is going. So all of today's Toms are really at high risk of having their protected space of play, of exploration, which yes, sometimes crosses the line and Tom Sawyer often did and today's Toms do too, but we are not going to help our kids figure out the lines if we are betraying their privacy with both real time and future consequences.
1: Let's zoom out for a second because there's a lot in in, in what you just said. And I wanna kind of read it back to you in my non-legal nerd sense. We we said a, mi- a minute ago that when you start to talk about the bad things that can happen, when you share information, especially as a parent, when you share information about your kids, that it kind of takes on this, this Rumsfeld quality of, there are known knowns, there are known unknowns. And I said, well, there, there are kind of two big buckets. And I, I sort of teed you up for the first one. So the first one to me, the Tom Sawyer example, really is, it's an illustration of known knowns. I think it's easy for all of us to picture, hey, your, your 16-year-old messed up and you share something about that, that could follow them, that could follow them for college admissions, for jobs, for all kinds of weird ways, you know. Maybe maybe someone googles them who they want to date in ten years. And they're like, "Wow, this this kid's not that wholesome." So we can kind of picture. Um, it's look. I will share right now that thirty years ago, when I was sixteen, I messed up multiple times. I did things that were illegal that involved going through subway tunnels in New York City that I should not have been in, stealing street signs that I definitely should not have stolen, and. It, I, I am very glad that, that no one was sharing about me. All right. So that's one bucket, right? There, there are these known knowns. But you started to talk a moment ago, and I think this is the, the direction that, that we should explore a little bit more about these known unknowns. Right. You're teaming up the idea that, you know, all of this information that parents share becomes part of a data profile. And we don't know where that leads. We don't know what's going to happen with it. There are so many tendrils and directions and rivulets that it it can follow. And you raised the example of these user agreements. It reminds me a little bit of the South Park episode where no one reads the iTunes user agreement. It turns out that deep buried in the text, you're agreeing to become a human centipede um, and have the Apple company do anything. Mike Lewis should really review that for his next law review article. I'll tell him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is possible. Who reads these user agreements? I don't. But you, your point, it sounds to me, is you're not getting any protection here from the company in terms of what they can do, what other people can do with your information, with your data. So let's, let's explore that a little bit here. So what are some of the uses that we know a little bit about that these data points that social media companies and other third parties are collecting about us. How are they used? Where do they go? What do we know of?
0: So I'm going to focus in on an area of the known unknowns that is particularly fascinating to me. And this is wearing my law nerd hat. It's not fascinating in a positive sense, but it's intellectually fascinating data brokers. So data brokers being a set of institutions that exist to aggregate analyze and reshare data profiles about individuals. And it is a pretty shadowy sector. There are definitely certain things that data brokers do that are in theory regulated by existing state and federal laws, but there are a lot of holes in that in terms of coverage. There are also huge holes in terms of enforcement. So I think it is fair to say this is a lightly regulated at best industry pretty much unregulated is probably more accurate. And I'd like to focus us in, I liked your Zoom pun, Matt, since we're talking on Zoom. So I'm going to Zoom us in on a study that was done at Fordham Law School by the Center on Law and Information Policy just a couple of years ago. And they had an interdisciplinary team of researchers that got curious to figure out what kinds of information data brokers. So commercial entities that exist to deal in private digitally acquired usually information. And they found a range of information from these brokers that included kids as young as two years old. And it included lists that you could buy of, and I'm reading directly from, from my book, which is Quoting the clip Study, a list of 14 and 15-year-old girls that were eligible for family planning services. So they were looking specifically at the actual or potential sexual health lives of underage girls and selling that information. They also were selling information of names of parents whose child was killed in a car crash, of rape victims of AIDS patients. That list again comes from the CLIP study. I'm reading from pages 25 to uh, 26 of of Sharon Hood here. And CLIP found that that information had largely come from data that was shared actually not by parents in this case, but by schools. As far as they could tell, this was not any school doing a, hey, data brokers, come on in and take a look. There wasn't any intentional sharing that was inappropriate. Rather, it was things the team said um, that schools front offices not handing this out, but, and I'm quoting now from the study again, teachers and guidance counselors are being used for commercial and marketing purposes as data gatherers in administering school surveys. And then also parents and students were supplying information through tools such as online surveys that then go into the commercial data broker sphere. And this is just a very, very small part Of the known unknown bucket that you identify and it's even a small part of that known unknown bucket that's on data brokers specifically but it's a bit of a window and it's very quickly a very disturbing window and so the folks that would buy those kinds of lists are going to be institutions that are then going to try to sell you product based on that information to sell you services or potentially other uses we can certainly I think all think of some very unsavory or downright illegal ways that information about 14 and 15 year old girls who might need family planning services could be used in addition, of course, to Lawful ways that that could be used not saying that any data broker or set of data brokers is actually doing something blatantly illegal, but I'm asking us all to connect dots between the risks of having that kind of sensitive information aggregated and then available for purchase.
1: You know, I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I faced a problem that I think is going to be familiar to a lot of parents with young kids. The stack of artwork that they were producing. I'm not trying to claim that my kids are like Picasso or anything here. You
0: mean things like this? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Our (laughs) listeners
1: can't tell. But, you know, look, every parent Knows what I'm talking about yes. here, right? Your kids are doodling, and and you have this dilemma of right, like, are you a callous person if your kid's latest doodle doesn't get stored away somewhere? If you start to think to yourself, I don't want to hold on to this for the next twenty years and only throw it out when my kid's out of the house. What am I going to do with it? So this clever app uh, was was I I don't know how I came across it. It's called Archive, and. The, the pitch was, well, you take a, a photo and then you, you upload the photo and we'll help you organize and keep track of all your kids' brilliant art. And then you'll have a record of it. You can look at it over time, blah, 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 blah. It's like, wow, what a great idea. This is, this is good for the environment. It's good for my house. And then I read the user agreement, which like no one on earth does. Turns out- You might that- be
0: a law nerd, Matt.
1: I might be. I, I I call me law curious. Um, I actually turned down the opportunity when I was in grad school to go to law school. Uh, I haven't regretted that since. But I read the user agreement. It turns out that Archive gains control of the intellectual property underlying your child's piece of art, and I started to try creatively to think of all the ways they could use that. Could they commercialize if my kid produced something particularly brilliant? Sure, they could put it on mugs. Since there's not a lot of danger of that in this household, I'm more worried about what you're talking about, how they could aggregate information that they could scrape from kids' artwork about me, them, our family, where we live, what we're interested in. You know, what if they draw themselves playing soccer? What if they draw, you know, like... (laughs) What do they draw their their brother punching them in the face? I don't know what is going to become of all of that. And that is the point. I want to talk about some of those other dot connection exercises that have emerged in the two years since you first wrote this book. There's been a lot of information that's come out about facial recognition technology and its use in law enforcement combined with location tracking technology that we all kind of carry around in our pockets, in our smartphones, and the ways that third parties can aggregate, can put together that information, law enforcement can do it too, to build up stunningly accurate pictures of where we go, who we are, what we're interested in, what our, what our foibles are, what our mistakes are, what our embarrassments are. Have you thought at all about some of those connection points that have emerged in the last couple of years since you wrote your book and how they inform the concerns about sharing information about your kids online. I
0: have, Matt, and I think that the more information that we are putting out there, the more that can be done with it. And that may sound like a captain obvious point, but it's an important point to keep in mind that, of course, the speed of technological innovation is not going to slow, nor do we want it to. But the more we pay for that innovation, And get either no cost or low cost services and products by paying with the currency of our children's private information, the more we are making it possible for both current and future innovation to involve not just the products or services, but to involve the kinds of profiling and then decision making. And so where my mind has gone quite a bit is on what I call the gatekeeping roles of key institutions so insurance companies schools, employers, those kinds of institutions that determine our children's either current, or in this case, I'm more interested in future access to resources and opportunities. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about stems from the uh, absolutely spot on articulation you just did of some major points of privacy impacting tech innovation, and also a wonderful book, Weapons of Math Destruction. And that book, you're not, you know it. So that book talks about how even in 2016, which I mean, anything pre-pandemic feels like light years ago, but you know, that's five years ago, that's half a decade. And so in tech innovation time, it's like dog years, right? Um, So think about it like decades ago, even at that point, weapons of mass destruction tells us that the hiring industry, so the kinds of tools that employers use to screen potential employees to screen applicants was a $500 million industry, and that 60 to 70% in 2016 of applicants to jobs in this country were going through some sort of hiring software. I use software in a very general term to encompass apps and really any other form of technology that is being used to get information from an applicant that can then inform a decision by a gatekeeper, in this case, an employer. And so my mind, as I connect the dots of, the, of location tracking and facial recognition and all of these other ways in which the nuts and bolts of our daily lives, what we look like at a given time, where we are going to, with whom we are speaking, gosh, 500 million back in 2016 what is that going to be in 2025, 2030? And what are the consumers, in this case, the employers going to expect? Well, don't I'm not designing tools for this space, but if I were, and I was interested in going to market, I would say, hey, employers, I am going to get you the best hiring software you've ever seen. I am going to figure out how to work with all the data brokers that are pulling all of the information from kids ideally going back even before conception. Let's see what we can do with that fertility tracking app or fertility tracking bracelet. And then I'm gonna go for every other type of aggregated digital data point, what they've looked like, where they've gone, with whom they've hung out and so on. And I'm gonna build a predictive model so that by the time your candidates get to you, in addition to having them fill out, whatever information you want from them in real time. And in addition to a criminal background check, a credit check. And by the way, I want to flag some, you know, there are laws that regulate the ways and the extent to which employers can ask for and use criminal background, consumer credit, and so on. But basically anything that is not prohibited by law, I'm going to get you employer. So by the time you're asking this person to fill out this test, you are going to have machine generated insights into what kind of employee they are going to be that are going to encompass not just do they have a criminal record, but where were they hanging out when they were 13 years old? Because we have figured out, company, how to understand the significance of that data. So I really think that not in any sort of conspiracy theory Wizard of Oz, one person's behind the curtain, but just the way the drift of our commercial marketplace in private digital information, which is still very unregulated, just the way that's going and then keeping pace with the innovation and the devices and services we have, we are moving to a more and more Big Brother-esque approach to the kinds of gatekeeping moments that our children will have going forward. So that's some of the stuff that keeps me up at night.
1: You know, you're pointing once again to this delineation. I think it's really, it's a really critical point that we all get, if you share the bad, embarrassing stuff, maybe that'll come back to bite you or bite your kid. But it's not just that. We also have the ability through data models, through predictive analytics these days to build up shockingly accurate, detailed profiles of people and make all kinds of statistical extrapolations correlations about who they are how they're going to perform what they're going to do in the future so for example it, you could easily conceive of colleges starting to use predictive modeling they're getting i mean look at look, look at competitive institutions you, you happen to be attached to harvard university one of the most competitive uh, undergraduate institutions in the world you can easily see they get thousands and thousands of applications that all look outstanding. Everyone's got perfect SATs. They they all you know went and built houses in Bangladesh in their summers. So how do you predict who is going to be a successful Harvard student, who is going to be a successful professional, who's then going to give back to Harvard um, when it's alumni giving time? Well, it would not be hard to start to build up a predictive model of that. And that's where it's not just about sharing the bad stuff. It's about everything you share, because everything potentially becomes a data point to feed in. And as you say, it could go prenatally. It could You could be sharing information that tells an employer or a university a lot about your family structure. It could be highly predictive what kinds of prenatal care you applied. It could be predictive what kind of family structure you have and where you come from, information that may not come through on a college application. So th- this is just me extrapolating. And for people who think that this kind of thing doesn't happen, I can tell you for an absolute fact that it happens not just commercially, it happens in politics. This is what the whole Cambridge Analytical uh, scandal was about with Facebook, was private companies scraping information from social media in order to extrapolate it across m- major data sets and build up highly detailed profiles of who people are, what they believe in, and what kinds of messages could influence their voting behavior. This stuff is happening right now in politics. I want to I expand a little bit on a point you just raised. You said something really insightful. I've never heard anyone put it quite this way before. It seems to me when you, when you talk about the currency of our children's private information, what you're saying is something very profound about economics. We engage with apps that are that are available ostensibly for free, with social media that's available ostensibly for free, and we engage with them in the currency of information. We are providing them something that has an economic value, that has a price on it, and we don't even realize it. We're all paying in that coin. So while you wrote your book about the... Sp- the specific slice of sharing information about our kids, are you really pointing to a larger concern in our society and our economy of the massive growth of all of these companies and all these ways we interact that's based on this ostensibly free model, but that's really based on the currency of our private information?
0: Am Matt, and one of the things that alarms me about it, in addition to some of the really practical and ethical applications, implications, excuse me, that we've been talking about is the fact that I think we're seeing a real breakdown of some very fundamental principles of the free market. I, I believe in the free market, but I am disturbed by the fact that so many of the ostensible bargains that we are entering into every day, and I don't mean bargain is the way my grandma would have said it, but we got a good deal, but actually consumer so-called contracts, they're not actually negotiated contracts. They are not actually bargains in the sense of both parties, you know, the tech provider and the consumer understanding the scope and the terms of the transaction. And I'm not saying that we want to have, you know, I'm holding up my phone now, right? I'm not asking for a label where there's so much fine print on the back of the phone that you can't even read it just so you can see it. I do think though, and this is not an idea I originated, it's an idea that a lot of privacy and consumer rights scholars have talked about for a while of having really meaningful government-regulated nutrition-style labeling of terms of digital technologies, both devices and services. It is not going to capture everything. It is not going to mean that each of us individually makes what, what someone objectively might think of as the healthiest choice, the same way that none of us individually always makes the healthiest choice of, you know, what we order from the drive through or even probably going to a drive through to start with. But it at least starts to standardize and thereby level the economic playing field a bit so that we're not all living with this fallacy that we are in our increasingly digitally driven economy entering into marketplace interactions that are actually consensual and knowing because they're really not. And that does disturb me. And you're absolutely right. That is a much larger critique that I have and concern that I have that goes past sharenting. It even encompasses, so I will, I will share happily and voluntarily with you and your audience that we are getting a new puppy this weekend in our house. I'm so excited. And I, you know, I'm pretty circumspect in terms of whether I say anything about my kids online, but I intend to share puppy pictures on social media because I can't resist sharing my furry child. I don't have the same types of ethical or practical concerns about doing that with our soon-to-be newest furry family member, but, and this is your phrase, not mine, if you are furrenting, I love it, you are still engaging in what I think of as a completely flawed disingenuous economic bargain what am I telling not just you and your listeners which is a huge group of course but if I'm putting it on Facebook that's an even larger group because it's going to involve corporate persons not just wonderful individual persons who are listening what are they going to find out maybe it only goes so far as I get some good you know deals in my email and my snail mail to buy puppy products but I suspect it doesn't stop there right
1: well, I, th- that's the point is that I don't know, but somewhere there are data scientists who do how to put together this fact about you and your family and your puppy with other pieces of data to build up a predictive profile about you. Maybe the fact that you're getting a puppy isn't so valuable to Chewy.com. You know, there may be other sources of data about that. Maybe it's, maybe it's valuable when it's put together with other pieces of data to some other retailer or a politician. We just don't know and that's that's worrisome to me. You know, you bring up an interesting point. You gave yourself permission to law nerd out for a moment. I want to econ nerd out for a minute and say, you know, look, econ 101 for anyone who's taken an economics course, one of the very first things you learn in microeconomics is that markets fail. Free market capitalism fails when information is not readily available to all parties. And what you're pointing to is the fact that there is a financial transaction going on every time you use social media. You're just not aware of it. You're giving away little pieces of value, little pieces of value, and other people are capturing it. Personally, I'd much rather either pay for a social media uh, platform that doesn't share anything about me, and I pay for that privilege, Or I'd rather just sign up and and spend an hour filling in a detailed questionnaire about my life and get paid, put it out on an open auction and have data brokers out there pay, hey, I want a thousand bucks to know everything about Matt Robeson and I want to cut. I want that money. All right, we've talked a little bit about what can be done as a lawyer. Not everyone is a superpower lawyer like you are. What about all of us who are parents? What can we practically do, and I think this applies not just to parents, this applies to everyone who's a little concerned by the conversation we've just had, what can you practically do? What are some good guidelines for intelligent interaction on social media that narrows your profile and limits some of these risks?
0: I'm smiling, Matt, because I certainly don't always engage the world wearing my lawyer hat. I more frequently engage it wearing my parent hat. And so I came to this topic not because I thought I had all the answers from my lawyer hat, but because as a parent, I was and still am trying to figure it out. So a couple of things to think about. One is if you can go low tech or no tech for an intimate conversation or interaction, Try that first. So do you really need an app to help monitor your children's sleep habits or location? Maybe you do, there are circumstances in which you do. I once gave a book talk about Sharon Hood at Literati bookstore in Ann Arbor and said, there's a smart diaper on the market that seems very invasive. And I had a wonderful audience member come up afterwards and say, I'm a pediatric urologist. It would actually be very helpful with some of my patients to be able to monitor urine output. Okay, great example. You actually need to go high tech there, but go low tech or no tech whenever possible. Second, and that's general, that's not just social media. Second, when it comes to social media specifically, stay away with your kids or yourself from full name, so including middle names, stay away with your kids from exact time, date, and location of birth. Certainly stay away from social security numbers. Um, for folks posting pictures of their vaccine cards, it is awesome, I'm so proud. My husband and I are both fully vaccinated. Please try to cover your dates of birth. I say this as a former consumer rights lawyer, unfortunately, anytime time you are serving up a full name, a location, a date of birth, certainly not an address. That can unfortunately be all too readily combined with things like social security numbers that unfortunately are all too available on the the dark web following data breaches and other ways of acquiring that information. So really just don't share that kind of identifying information. Last but not least, when you are posting about your children, Use what I call the holiday card rule of thumb. So I'm going to date myself. I'm the tail end of Gen X. I still remember when people, notably my grandma, would send these wonderful, you know, mimeographed and then, you know, word processed holiday letters. And they would include updates on all of the members of the family, but they were updates that would go to everyone from great aunts to bosses to colleagues. My Grandfather was a diplomat for many years. So, I mean, it went to professional contacts around the world. So it was always calibrated at that level of here are things about our family that are appropriate for public facing consumption and appropriate for public facing consumption, meaning it's the kind of thing that back when we had local newspapers more, you could see it in the local newspaper. So-and-so graduated from high school. So-and-so started this new job. I do think that if you are in doubt about whether to post on social media about something in your child's life, think about the holiday card rule of thumb and think about the fact that even if you think it's a small circle, it could be seen by everybody from your great aunt to your current boss, to your future boss, to your child's future boss. And sometimes when I give that advice, I get a little pushback, which is great. Law professors love pushback. And people will say, well, the norms have changed right? You know, okay, Gen X, okay, boomer. Um, My kid said, okay, boomer to me the other day. And I was like, first of all, that's rude. And second, um, hello. (laughs) I'm actually not a boomer. Um, Not okay to say even if I were. So the norms have changed. So actually, you should not apply that test anymore. And to that, I say, you're absolutely right. It is less culturally weird now to stand up in the digital circle, digital town square of social media and say, my kid finally stopped wetting the bed, then it would have been to make a poster of that and put it in a town square, you know, back in in my era of growing up in the, the 80s and early 90s. But the potential for that to negatively impact your child, both in terms of embarrassment when they inevitably find it, and actually to impact them even more dramatically down the road in the ways we've talked about, it's actually greater. So there was something to the restraint that previous generations showed in calibrating public-facing information that I think we would be well-served to go back to a little bit.
1: Well, I certainly, you know, we've engaged in this conversation before, you know, and I, I have really tried to take, boy, you know, I started at the top of the show talking about how you are an exemplar of a better half. My better half, my wife, when I signed up for Facebook, the very first rule she she made me apply was no sharing any and no pictures of our kid. And I pretty much stuck to that. I made an exception when my daughter and I met Big Poppy. That 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 feels shareable to me. That I mean, that's a universal law. If you meet Big Poppy, you get to share that. But I, you know, that that turned out to be really super duper smart and really prescient. And now that uh, our kids are a little bit older, it's entered into the to the next phase of this, which is they're beginning to want to share information about themselves. So do you have any advice for parents who are entering that phase? How do you talk to your kids about some smart rules of thumb um, about what they share about themselves?
0: Such a fascinating question. And in my household, we're getting close to that too. First, I think we recognize that at exactly the way you're framing it, it is coaching around digital citizenship because just like really any other aspect of parenting, but particularly with technology, because our kids always seem to know it better than we do, good luck trying to monitor or oversee or track what they're actually doing. So I would say, tell your kids, assume that everyone in the world will be able to see what you are putting online. And if they have that in the back of their minds, it will give them that moment of pause and recognize that there may be unintended eyes now and in the future on what they see. So help them understand their potential reach when they put it online, as opposed to whisper it six feet away through a mask for the time being.
1: Well, Leah Plunkett, thank you so much for running all of this down for us. It is a fascinating and also evolving topic. I imagine that we'll be able to return to this with the continued march forward of technology again and again in the coming years, and hopefully we'll start to figure some of this stuff out a little bit better. The book is Sharonhood, why we should think before we talk about our kids' Online And by the way, per this conversation, it's not just when we talk about our kids. Maybe we should all be thinking a little bit more about everything we share online, where it goes, who's using it, who's putting it together with other information about us, with our faces, with our movements, a lot to chew on there. So Leah, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure.